the other day, my family and I were driving down the road, and we passed um, a really nice-looking house. And uh, my kids started kind of pointing out features about this house and uh, things that from the outside were pretty impressive. And so they made the comment of like, man, those folks, man, they must be really rich to have those kind of things at their house. And I'm going to be completely honest with you. I know nothing about the people that live in that house. We've never met those folks. We, we have no idea who they are. We have no idea what they do for a living or if they do anything for a living. We have no clue who these people are or anything about them. Uh, we simply made this judgment that they are rich uh, because of what we saw on the outside of their house. And so we kind of made the assumption they're rich, they're successful, and they're happy because of the size and feature of their house. And if you're honest, you have probably done the exact same thing. You probably passed a nice house or a nice car, and you've made these assumptions about people that you have no clue about simply because of what the, you saw on the exterior, either a house or a car or something like that. And the reason we do that is because we've been conditioned to think this way, that, that we've learned through history that society tells us that money equals success, that if you have money, you are successful in one way, shape, or form. And, and money also, because of it, it leads to success, is also what brings happiness. And so people automatically think that if you live in a big house and drive a nice car, that you're happy, you're content, and all that's true. But you don't have to live life very long. You don't have to search the book of Proverbs very long to find out that is not always the case. In fact, this morning we're going to be in the book of Proverbs, and we're going to find out that God presents us with a much better view of money than that. And I'm going to be honest with you, it's not the most popular view, it's not the easiest view, but it's by far the better view of money because it is the most realistic view of money and wealth. Because as we look through this topic of money over this week and next week in the book of Proverbs, and this week's going to be kind of the foundational stuff of what we believe about money and how we view money, next week will be more the practical stuff of how do we live this out, okay? But when we look at this idea of money, and, and I know it's one of those subjects nobody wants to talk about, and maybe I should teach this on Wednesday night with my other stuff that nobody wants to talk about, but this is where we're at because this is a major subject in the book of Proverbs. In fact, money and what we do with wealth is a major subject, not just in Proverbs, but all of the, all of the Bible. In fact, Jesus spends more time talking about that than he does heaven. So if Jesus gives more attention to money than heaven, then maybe we should pay a little bit of attention to how we spend our money on earth. Because what Jesus tells us is that you cannot serve God and money at the same time. You can only have one master. And so as we look through these texts in the book of Proverbs, and as we consider this topic over the next week, or this week and next week, I want you to kind of realize that all of us in this room and all of us gathered online, we live in one of two ways. We either live that money is your master or that God is your master and money is a tool. Right? That's the only two realities that you have. You cannot live with both of those realities. You must live in one of those realities because you cannot serve two masters. So either money is your master or God is your master and money is a tool. Specifically, it's a tool that he gave you to bless others and to build his kingdom. And so we, we all know which one of those we want to be true. We all know which one of those we want to live in. But the question is, are we actually living that way? See, we can sit here and we can say, oh yeah, I know I want to claim God as my master and money as a tool. I know I don't want to be a slave to money. We can all say that all day long and we can know that and we can think that. But the question is, are we really, are we really living that way? So as we go through these principles and these financial aspects for the next, this week and next week, I want you to think to yourselves as we go through these. Number one, is this something that I know? Right? 
And number two, is this something I really believe? And number three, maybe the hardest part of all of them, is this something I'm really living out day to day in my life? Right? We've talked the last couple of weeks, and we're building up to this theme this coming year of, of learning, loving, and living. And so we're going to do that even not just with the gospel, but with this idea of money. That we're not just going to learn how to manage our money and what to do with our money, but it does no good to have this better view of money if we don't live it out. Because the reality is that we are either slaves to money, or we're a slave to God who uses money as a tool. And so the question you need to ask yourself over and over again as we work through these words of Scripture is, do I know this? Do I believe this? And am I living this out? Am I really seeing money as my master or God as my master and money as a tool that He has given me to bless others and to build His kingdom? So to start us off building this better view of money, I want you to look with me in the book of Proverbs chapter 23. We're going to read two verses, verses 4 and 5, um, and then we're going to leave them there for a while and we're going to circle around and we'll come back to them at the very end of our time together. So Proverbs chapter 23, verse 4, starts off with this. Do not or don't wear yourself out to get rich. Stop giving your attention to it. Verse 5, as soon as your eyes fly to it, it disappears. For it makes wings for itself and it flies like an eagle to the sky. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for today. God, we thank you for your amazing, wonderful, reckless love. God, a love that chases us down when we are running far away. God, a love that will tear down every wall and every barrier that we have tried to build up and put in your place. God, I thank you that you never gave up chasing after me. God, I thank you that you never gave up. And even today, you still pursue me. Because I have ran so far from you, God. God, this morning I pray that as we study your word, as we study... Your wisdom this morning. God, I pray that it's not just a lesson that we sit here and we learn. Maybe we even take notes on God, but that we change the way that we live our lives because of the words that you have taught us this morning. And so, God, I pray that you will speak. And I pray that we will listen, not just with our hearts, not just with our minds, but with every fiber of our being, God, so that when we leave here today, we will leave here with a better view of money, God, that we won't be slaves to money, but rather, God, that we will be your slave, God, that we will see you as our master and money as a tool that you gave us, God, to build your kingdom and to bless others. And so, God, I pray that we are transformed by the wisdom that you have for us this morning, Father, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Robert Kiosko, some of you may know that name. I'm probably butchering that name. Is an author and a businessman. He's written more than 26 books. And most of them, uh, probably all of them, focus on one of three subjects. Either real estate investments, business finances, or personal finances. So 26 books, all dealing with these specific things. And, and he has all these different ideas, and some of them are great. Some of them he's gotten in trouble for. But about six years ago, he started to notice there are a lot of creative people out there in the world. There's a lot of people who are creative enough to come up with a new product or a new idea or develop some new type of business. And he says there's a lot of people out there that have million-dollar ideas. Now, I don't know if you're one of those, okay? There, there's a lot of us that have an idea, and we're like, this may be valuable. This may be worth something, right? I don't know if you've ever had those moments where you thought you had a million-dollar idea. But Robert kind of noticed, he said, you know, for all these folks out there that have million-dollar ideas, the problem is that very few of them actually make millions of dollars off of them. 
that very few of them actually see this million-dollar idea come off the ground and they actually see it as productive at all. That, that very few of them ever get this idea or this product or, or this, uh, this business practice. Very few of them ever kind of take off. And he said that there's, there's got to be some common factor between what determines if this product and this idea is going to succeed or not. So he started kind of interviewing and studying all these entrepreneurs or would-be entrepreneurs. And he, he looked at ones that, that had million-dollar ideas that thought they were fully confident, this is going to be a game-changer for me, this is going to change everything, going to, all my dreams are going to come true, and, and they, they failed. And then he compared those with ones who, this, was, this is small and it's simple, but it's a game-changer, and this is going to make all my dreams come true, and it did. And he says, what is the difference and what determines between an idea that takes off and one that doesn't take off? And so he started with the ones who didn't take off first. And he started questioning. He's like, well, what do, you, what do you think happened? Why do you think if this idea was so good and so great, why do you think it didn't take off? Why do you think it didn't leave the ground? And, and the majority of them had kind of the same answer. The majority of them simply said, well, we were really shocked at how much money it took to get started that it really took a whole lot more money to get this idea out there than we thought it was going to do than it was going to be. And so really if we said that there was a failure, our failure was that we didn't have enough cash on hand when we started this. We had this idea, we had a little bit of cash and we thought that was enough, but it wasn't, right? And so we failed because we didn't have enough cash supply, cash reserve on hand to get this product up and going. And so if we had to do it over again, we would hold on to the idea a little bit longer and build either more investors or more savings and get that money that we needed. And so he, they said, well, if this is a common factor, then maybe this is it. Maybe this is the reason products fail and products succeed is because there's a certain amount of money or there's a certain percentage uh, that has to be in the bank or, or in someone's pocket to make this product a success. So then he goes and he starts to interview all these other entrepreneurs who actually made their product or their business idea successful. And he started to talk to them. And he, well, what made you successful? How did you do this? How did you go from zero to this? And so he started kind of digging in their finances. And he found something very interesting. What he found was this group over here that was extremely successful started with relatively the same amount of cash on hand or even less amount of cash on hand than that group that failed over there. And so he began to kind of question his hypothesis. Maybe it wasn't about a certain amount of money or a certain percentage. Maybe there was something else that was the determining factor whether the product was going to succeed or a product was going to fail. That, that apparently cash on hand was not the most important factor. And so in 2017, he published a book by that title that there are things that are more important than money. And, and so he came to this conclusion that when you have a product or when you have a million-dollar idea, money in the bank is not what's going to make that product succeed, and it's not going to determine if that product fails. There are things that are more important than money. And several advisors that helped him contribute to this book said, yeah, in fact, there are several things in business that are much more valuable than money, much more valuable than how much cash a business has on hand. And in fact, uh, the business world has finally started to catch up with things that we have known for thousands of years, because what Proverbs tells us, and Solomon tells us through the book of Proverbs, is simply there are things that are more valuable than money. In fact, he gives us three things very specifically that are more valuable than money. And he shows us all three of these things that are more valuable than money. And the first one he says is more valuable than money is simply the whole idea of Proverbs. It is wisdom itself. Now, just to kind of show you how business is catching up with this idea, 
One of the things that, that they noted in that book that I mentioned earlier was that wisdom actually is more valuable than money. He says, if you have a million-dollar idea, you don't need more money. What you need is more wisdom to control that product, to control that money. He says, what you would be better off doing, so this is your financial advice for the day, okay? So if you've got a million-dollar idea, write this down. Your first job with a million-dollar idea is not to gain money, and it's not to gain investors, your first job with a million-dollar idea is to surround yourself with successful business people and associate with successful business people, to network yourself and connect yourself with other people who have taken a million-dollar idea and turned it into an actual million dollars. He says you're much better off doing that than you are getting money for your product. Why? Because the wisdom you will gain from that circle of people and that, that network that you build is much more valuable than the money you have on hand. And Proverbs makes this so clear as well. In fact, we're going to back up to the chapter 3 and, and how Solomon points this out in chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. And it says in verse 13, he says, Happy is the man who finds wisdom and who acquires Knowledge In verse 14, he goes on to say, For she, talking about wisdom, and earlier he, he kind of personified wisdom as this lady. He says, For she is more profitable than silver, and her revenue is better than gold. And the word revenue there is a word that we could use for a product or her income. And so financially speaking, this is your return on your investment. right? So what he's telling you is you get a better return on your investment for wisdom than you do for silver and for gold, meaning that it is more valuable if you're going to invest in something, invest in wisdom and not in finances. And so he goes on in verse 15, we read it and says, She, again, wisdom, is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire compares with her. So get the silver, gold, jewels, all this stuff, nothing, the big house, the big car, nothing compares to the value of wisdom. Right? And Solomon really drives this point home. And in fact, he drives this point home so clear that he repeats it over and over and over again. Now, just to remind you, Solomon is the richest man in the world at this time. All right? In fact, when you compare his net worth, the net worth of, of even rich people today, he is still more valuable than they are. All right? After inflation and all those other calculations you want to use. Right? So, but he gives this idea that regardless of all the money you got, if you don't have wisdom... You really don't have that much money. In fact, look what he says in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 10 and 11. He says, Accept my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than pure gold. Verse 11, For wisdom is better than jewels, and nothing desirable can compare with it. And then later in the book, in chapter 16, verse 16, he puts it very bluntly. He says, Get wisdom for or how much better is it than gold? And understanding is preferable to silver. So over and over and over, here's this very rich man telling you that the thing that's more valuable than all his bank accounts is the wisdom that he has. What he's really telling you and me as we read through this book is you don't need more money. What you need is more wisdom. Right? Now, that may be shocking for some of us who are paying or praying for a bigger paycheck. It may be shocking for some of us who are praying for a promotion. It may be shocking for some of us that are honestly praying to win the lottery. And he says, what you don't need is to pray those kind of prayers. What you do need is to pray that you have wisdom instead of those kind of prayers. Because when you have wisdom, not necessarily the lottery, but those other things will follow suit. Let me put it to you this way. In 2009... The average NBA player's salary for one year in 2009 was $3.4 million. One year playing basketball, $3.4 million. Yeah, I want to make sure I gave you that number right. $3.4 million. 
Now, let me give you another statistic. In that same year, the reason I use 2009 as that that number is because in that same year, Sports Illustrated had done a survey. And and they had kind of looked back at all the, the professional athletes. And they said that in 2009... 60%, at least 60% of NBA players will be bankrupt five years after they leave the sport. 60%. By the way, it's different for NFL and Major League Baseball players, all right? Those percentages are different, higher or lower, depending on those. Now, understand this. That I don't know. I don't know your finances. Whether you're here in person or you're on, maybe you are making three point four million dollars a year. If you are, then come visit me at Beaumont Farms, okay? But listen, the problem is not the amount of money that these folks made, because clearly, I think any of us sitting in here, any of us watching online, if we could just, if I mean, that's, I would just play one year. And I think that would be enough to sustain me, okay? But you're not talking about people that play one year. You're talking about people that hand year over year after year made average $3.4 million, some of them for 10 years, some of them for 12 years, some of them for more than that. And then five years after, they're broke. They're bankrupt. You see, the problem wasn't the amount of money that they made. The problem was the lack of wisdom that they had to deal with the money that they made. You're talking about boys and girls, boys that are, are 19, 20, 21 years old, that somebody says, hey, I want you to sign this contract for $29 million. And they're like, awesome, let's do it. And they sign this contract, and all of a sudden they start blowing through money. And that's the reason that $3.4 million is not enough. You see, the problem is not the amount of money. The problem is the amount of wisdom or the lack of wisdom thereof. And so what Solomon is telling you, and that's just one example. Think of all the lottery winners that win millions of dollars and end up going broke or end up with all these other troubles. What Solomon is telling you is you don't need more money. There's no amount of money that's going to be this is the level that you need for for everything to be satisfied. What you need is wisdom. And so in our prayers, we need to be praying for wisdom. We need to be praying that that we have wisdom, not for a bigger paycheck or to win the lottery. We need prayers for wisdom. How do I live within these means? Wisdom to know how I manage the money that I do have. And if I have this million-dollar idea and I actually make a million dollars off of it, how do I manage that? You see, it's not the the money that we need. It's the wisdom that we need to to throw this problem, or instead of throwing money at this problem, we need the wisdom of how to deal with this. And so Solomon makes it clear that wisdom is always and will always be more valuable than money. So now we know that. We're going to say that we believe that. The question is, are you going to live that out? In your prayers, is that going to be your prayer? God, give me wisdom to live within my means. Give me wisdom to know how to manage what you've done for me. Give me wisdom to manage these tools that you have given me. Are we going to revert back to money is my master? See, there's another thing that Solomon says is more valuable than money, and it's simply a good name. It says a life and a legacy of integrity and righteousness is more valuable than all the money and the wealth in the world. And he tells this very clearly in Proverbs chapter 22, the very first verse. Solomon says in that verse, he says, A good name is to be chosen over great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. Character and reputation are more valuable than money. And how do I know that? I know it several ways. First off, I know it because the Bible says, and the Bible says it's true, okay? So very clearly, that settles it, right? Second, I know it because of this. I have, I have had to do several funerals for several different folks. Some of them I know, some of them I don't know. You know what I've never had a family tell me at the end of someone's life? Man, they, they were such a beautiful person. They had such a great bank account. That's not what I hear. Man, they were such a beautiful person. Did you see that car that they were driving? That's not what I hear. What I hear at the end of someone's life 
is not about their finances. I hear about the quality of their character at the end of their life. Nobody wants me to stand up at a funeral and be like, let me tell you about this man's 401k. Let me tell you how great this man's investment strategy was. Now, you know what the family wants to hear and what the family tells me about these people? This was my dad who gave up everything for me. This is my mom who could have made more money but decided that it wasn't worth losing her integrity or her honesty or her reputation for. This is the character of the person. So I can tell you that second, first because the Bible says it, second because I've seen it and I've experienced it, that at the end of life, people are not worried about how much money it is. They're worried about the character or the reputation. But the third reason I can tell you that it's simply the good name is better than wealth is because there is no amount of money that can replace a reputation, that you cannot buy a reputation. If you could buy a reputation, it would mean that money was more valuable than a reputation, but you can't buy a reputation. I guess you can, but it wouldn't be the type of reputation that you would want to be buying in the first place. In fact, it would show the actual reputation that you have, right? Richard Branson is a multi-billionaire and he controls over 400 different companies and he says this, all you have in business is your reputation. So it's very important that you keep your word. He goes on to say this, he says, there are many people who were at the top of their game when they made one fatal mistake due to poor judgment, arrogance, or an inability to do the right thing. Reputations are destroyed and get this, and all the money in the world can't buy them back. It sends, Warren Buffett, one of the richest guys in the world, says it takes you 20 years to build a reputation and five minutes to destroy it. 20 years to build and five minutes to destroy. Now, if you invested your money in one of those two, which one would you invest your money in? Something that's going to be asked for 20 years or something that you're going to destroy that quickly? Think about it. What he's telling you is simply this. that Even if you lose all of your money and you hold on to your integrity, there's a chance that over time you can earn your money back. But if you lose your reputation and hold on to your money, then rest assured it won't last. And what you'll find is that at the end you have neither money nor reputation. In fact, Proverbs 21 verse 6 makes it clear. He says that making a fortune through a lying tongue is a vanishing miss and a pursuit of death. And so if you're a place where you have to make a choice between integrity and wealth always choose integrity. If you're in a place where you have to choose between character or cash, always choose character. If you're in a place where you have to choose between reputation and riches, always choose reputation. Why? Because all the other stuff will take care of itself. But if you lose this, you have nothing. And all of this will fade away and go to nothing. Your reputation, your integrity, your good name is far more valuable than any amount of money. So how do we live that out? It means we don't cheat on our taxes as Christians. How do we live that? It means we don't fudge the numbers in our businesses. We don't puff up our resumes to make it look better so that we get a better promotion. We don't take credit for other people's work or other people's ideas so that we get what's coming to them. It means we live out the fact that our integrity is more important than any amount of money that we have or we can make. And the final thing that Solomon shows us is more valuable than money is our relationship and really our families. And you see in the ancient world, one of the ways to show off your wealth was that you threw these big, huge festivals. You threw these parties, these lavish feasts, and you, you invited all these people over. Now, part of the reason that was such a, a way to express wealth 
was because resources in those days were hard to come by. There wasn't an IGA sitting on the corner that you could just go and pick up, you know, slabs of meat and throw them on the grill this afternoon, right? To do those things, you had to, you had to have wealth, right? You either had to have enough money to have servants to go get those things or cook those things. And so you had this, these limited resources. And most families in those days, their only concern was either feeding their family or making enough money to feed their family. They didn't have money for extravagant parties. They didn't have money to, to invite other people over, all right? You just fed who you were responsible for. And so one of the ways that you showed off your wealth was you had these huge extravagant feasts. You had entertainment come in. You had food out the wazoo. I mean, you just had spreads. That, like, think of Golden Corral where there's just an endless buffet. That's what you had. And the more food you had, the more entertainment you had, the more impressed your guests were going to be because all this was just extra. And at the end of the day, it's all going to be thrown away doesn't make a difference. I got this much money. I can just, I can spend it on you guys or I can just throw it all away. It doesn't matter to me. And so that was the way you showed off your wealth. Kind of, honestly, we kind of do that today. And we try to impress our guests with, with how much wealth that we have. But I want you to notice what he says in Proverbs chapter 17, verse 1. He tries to give us this better view of money and this realization that family and relationships are much more valuable than money and wealth. In chapter 17, verse 1, he says, better a dry crust of bread with peace than a house full of fasting, or excuse me, not fasting, a house full of feasting with strife. Did you hear that? I don't know how many of you have loaves, like all of you buy the loaves of bread, and some of you are, are religious about this and some of you are not. There are two pieces of bread that are the most neglected pieces of bread in that whole loaf. They're the ends, the heels, the crest. What do you call those, all right? Now, some of you, you're wealthy enough that you can just throw those things away, Okay. Some of us grew up making sandwiches out of those things, all right? Because that's what, it was bread, and we ate those things, all right? So wherever you're at, I want you to notice what he's telling you here in this verse. Those ends that most people just throw away, because the honest reality is that those are really just there to protect the rest of it from getting stale anyway, okay? They're the buffer between the good stuff and the bad stuff, all right? So you let those go stale, but what he's telling you in this verse is that that dry, crusty piece of bread eaten in peace is better than this house that's full of feasting, this lavish feast that you put out there with all the extra, you're better off eating this dry, crusty piece of heel of bread that nobody else wants in peace than, than everything else. It carries this same idea, and this one's a little harder for me to swallow, and you're going to see why here in just a second. Chapter 15, verse 17, instead of bread, he uses the idea of vegetables. In verse 15, 7, or chapter 15, verse 7, he says, Better a meal of vegetables where there is love than a fattened ox with hatred. Understand that bread and vegetables are common foods. Those are what everybody can afford. Feasting and fattened oxes are for the rich people. They're for the upper up. So what he's telling you is, is listen, that, that, that peace and love and a home or a family are more important and more valuable than all the extravagant wealth. That the relationships that surround you are more important and more valuable than all the stuff that we surround ourselves with. You see, money, stuff, wealth, none of that is going to ensure peace. None of that is going to ensure love lasting in a family. In fact, most of the time, it does the exact opposite. Let me give you this illustration. And for some of you, this may be where you're at. There are folks that, uh, let's say there's a family that, that want a new car, 
They don't have to have a new car. They just want one, all right? There's, there's one that they really had their eye on, and so they see it a lot, and they, they want that car. Or maybe they want a bigger, nicer house and a bigger, nicer neighborhood, all right? So they set this goal. This is what they want to do, but they realize that at their certain income level, the bank says, sorry, Charlie, you can't get what you want on this income level. So their only option is if this is what we want, then we got to up our income level. And so, fine. We can do that. So the husband, he goes and gets a second job, and the wife, she starts working extra overtime um, so that they can make, the, make the, 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 their income go up. Now, what we fail to realize that when we do that for a house or for a car, you're not just getting a second job or an extra working overtime for a month or two. You're talking a five-year investment for a car or 30 years for a mortgage on a house, all right? And, and so is it really worth working that extra job or extra overtime for an extra 30 years? Because what ends up happening is this family who wants this common goal of a bigger house or a nicer car or whatever it is that, that you're trying to finance, what ends up happening is that you end up spending time further apart and more time apart because he's at work and she's working. Right? And so what was supposed to bring you closer together, this big, nice family, this big, nice house, this big, nice car, it was going to bring us together. We had this common goal, and suddenly you're spending, further, you're spending more time apart from each other than you were together in the smaller house or the older car. And when you spend time apart from each other, you start to drift apart. In fact, that drifting apart becomes kind of this, this moment where you begin to resent each other. And you begin to resent the fact. And so you find yourself making comments like, well, he's always at work. He thinks I'm some kind of single mom taxi service that just shuttles our kids around all the time because he's always working. Or maybe the wife is... is or the husband saying, well, she's always working overtime and she's never at home to cook dinner. And so, yeah, we eat at McDonald's every single night because she's not home to cook and she's not home to help me get these kids. And, and, and yeah, it, it's easy when there's two of us, but now that there's only one of us. And so there's resentment not in the job, not in the overtime. The resentment comes personal. She's doing this. He's doing that. And you forgot the reason that he or she was doing that was because you made an agreement to do it and to work together at it. And so suddenly what was supposed to bring you together has now pushed you further and further apart. And so now you've got a big house, and now you've got a nice car that comes with all these extra payments, but the real question is, was it worth it? Because you no longer have a home that's full of peace and love. What you have is a house that constantly fights over money. You have a house that's constantly full of strife. You have a, constantly, or a house that's constantly feeling pressure and payments and debts. And the real question is, was it really worth it? All the extra overtime, all the extra jobs, all the extra stuff, was it really worth it? Do you really believe it and do you really live like your family and your marriage is more valuable than any money or any stuff that you have? Now let me give it to you another way. For you guys that are parents, be very careful at how much you substitute doing stuff for your kids versus doing stuff with your kids. You see, a better view of money says that the time you spend with your kids is far more valuable than the money that you will spend on your kids or for your kids. So I want to make myself clear. Listen, if, if you are working extra or you're working overtime, you're working a second job so that you can go on that dream vacation so that you can spend time with your kids and build memories with your kids that are going to last forever, I'm all for it. You go and you do that. That's great. However, 
If you're working a second job or you're working extra overtime and you're working all this extra stuff just so that your kid can do extra stuff, that becomes a problem. When you're working a second job or working overtime for your kid to get on an extra team or for your kid to take an extra class or for your kid to get a better car or for your kid to to spend more time out with their friends, you're doing stuff for your kid and not with your kid. And you actually start to realize that what you're doing, hopefully you come to this realization that what you're doing is you are spending less time with your kid, get this, so that you can spend less time with your kid. You ever thought about that? I'm working overtime, so I'm already apart from my kid, but I'm doing it so that I can get my kid to a baseball field or to a football field who I'm not, uh, yeah, sure, I'm on the sidelines, but am I with my kid? No, I've done something for my kid, not with my kid. You see, so much of what we do is for our kids and not with our kids. And a better view of money says the time and investment you spend with your kids is far more valuable than any money that you'll spend on your kids, far more valuable than anything you will do for your kids. So be very careful as parents that we don't live this lifestyle that says that what I do for you is more important than what I do with you. You see, a better view of money says that my family and my relationships with my kids is more important and more valuable than money. See, it's so important that we live that out. And if we don't embrace that, if we don't live that out, then we're going to pass along this false narrative to our kids that simply says that your value as a person is only in how much you make or how much money you have. And I want you to understand that Solomon makes it very clear that's a false narrative. It's a false reality because Solomon makes it clear and, and that a better view of money shows us that our view or our value is not found in our bank account. Instead, it's found in not what this world says, but in who made us. That their value, the value of everyone, is not found in the size or the lack of a bank account. It's simply in who created us. In Psalms, or Proverbs, excuse me, Proverbs chapter 22, verse 2, Solomon puts it this way. He writes, The rich... And the poor have this in common. The Lord made them both. Now, the word translated in common is a beautiful word. It, 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 we translate it in common. You may have a different translation in your, uh, a different version in your translation. But it simply means meet together or join together. Right? There's this commonality here that, that is stronger than anything else. So I want you to realize what he's doing. He separated the riches from the poorest. And what he's done is these are polar opposites. These are opposite ends of the spectrum. He's talking about the richest of the rich and the poorest of the poor. He says that, that everybody else falls into those two categories or, or within that spectrum. And so these are the opposites. These are far apart and far away as you can get. And yet they meet because they have a common creator. And when they meet, their value is that they were created and they bear the same image of the same God who created them all the exact same. You see, the value is not in this person makes more and this person makes less. Their value is in who made them and whose image they bear and whose signature is on the masterpiece that was created by them. You see, there's commonality that God made them both. He shaped them, He formed them, and created them, and they have equal value. And so I want you to understand that no matter where you fall, on this wealth-poverty scale, wherever you find yourself, your value is not on that scale at all. Your value is on the one who created you. Your value is on the one who stamped his name on you. Your value is on the one who's, who put his image on you. So from the richest person in the world, and you, you may not like him, he may not act like it, but he was created and crafted by God, all the way to the poorest person who lives in the ditch, in the side ditch, he was created and crafted by God. He is the image of God, and they bear the same image, and so they have the same quality. They have the same value. And the lowest 
poorest person in the world has as much value as the richest person in the world because they were crafted by the same God. And all of us in between those two extremes, we all have the same amount of value. We all meet together on this level playing field. Why? Not because of what we've done, but because of who He is. And because we bear His image. So the person's worth is not determined by how much money they have or their income. A person's worth isn't determined by the size of their 401k or their IRA. A person's worth isn't determined by all the stuff that they have around them. So if we're going to live this out, what does it look like? It means that we treat everybody equally with equal value and equal respect. It means that we don't allow ourselves to ever feel worthless because we're not. And it doesn't allow, we don't allow ourselves to, to see anybody else that way. It doesn't allow, we don't allow ourselves or anyone else to feel or be treated worthless because we bear the image of the Most High God. We bear the image of the One who created the universe. We bear the image of God Almighty. And then just because of that, there is value in every single person. We're going to live this out. It means that we're never going to neglect the intrinsic value of a person. Instead, we're going to always value that more than the money they have or they don't have. It means that we don't look down on somebody because they have a low-paying job when we look up to somebody else just because they make more money. If we're going to live this out, we realize the value of a person is on the inside, the quality of their character, not in their finances, not in their bank. And it means that we don't value someone just because of what we see Because the reality is that this world's wealth is often very, very deceptive. That what you see with your eyes may not be a real picture of what's going on with that person. I remember when I was younger, me and my dad and my brother went to Dario. And I've talked about the Dario. And some of you have the experience now that Dario is much closer. It's in Mooresville. You can go experience Dario too. But when I was growing up, Dario was just an ice cream place. right? And just a little grill that you didn't even go into it. You literally walked up to the window. And they raised the window. And you just ordered. And then they handed the ice cream or the hot dog out to you. right? And then you sat out on benches or whatever. And you just sat in the parking lot. That's, that was Stokes County at its finest right there. That was the best Stokes County had to offer was the Dario. You're welcome for all of you who have experienced it, right? Born and bred there in Stokes County. But one day, me and my brother and my dad were sitting there, and we were sitting there eating ice cream, and uh, we noticed this gentleman coming across the parking lot, and he walked up, and he ordered ice cream, and he went over and sat down. And uh, this guy sitting over there, it's all by himself. He had on this raggedy T-shirt, and he had on these dirty shorts that had holes all in them. And, and then we, I remember, like, I can picture him right now in my mind. And the shoes that he was wearing were these raggedy old torn-up tennis shoes. And I'm pretty sure that if he'd have pushed his toe out far, and, like, his toe would have come out the end of that, that. He had a big, huge hole at the end of his right foot. That I'm pretty sure his big toe could have stuck completely out of that shoe. And I don't know, I'll be honest with you, this is confession. I don't really remember if it was me or my brother, but we just started like making jokes about this guy sitting over there, all right? We were kids, forgive us, it's all right. Uh, and so we, we made a joke about like him being the hobo of king or something like that. And we made a joke of like maybe he should spend his ice cream money on a new pair of shoes or something like that. And so we were, I mean, we were terrible. I'm just going to be honest with you, this is true confession. We were terrible. And my dad just sitting there the whole time, he just sits there listening. He doesn't say a word. And this was my dad. He was very quiet. Um, and so my dad was one of those, we talked about him before, that when he spoke, you listened to him because he didn't speak a lot. And so when he did, it was important. And so he just let us sit there and talk. And he just kind of had this little grin on his face. And he just let us carry on. We finished our ice cream. We were getting ready to get up and leave. And he said, I want to tell you boys something. And we're like, what? And he said, that man over there, probably one of the richest men in King. And we're like, no way, Dad. You, you don't even know that man. That is ridiculous. There is no way that that guy sitting over there is one of the richest men in King. 
And so we blew it off, and we threw our, our wrappers away, and we got up, and we started walking to our, our car or our truck that we were, were driving. And we walked past this man, and this man looks at my dad, and he said, Hey, Jim, how you doing? And we knew right then that Dad knew this guy because Dad knew everybody. <laughs> and Dad looked straight at this man, and he goes, I'm fine, Dr. Newsom. How are you? And me and my brother just stopped. And then we suddenly, like, humbly walked towards the truck. And, like, you know that moment when the truck doors close and you feel like the rest of the world can't hear you anymore? That's what happened. We got in the truck and the truck door shut. And we're like, wait, wait just a minute. That is Dr. Newsom? Yep. Wait, that, that's the Dr. Newsom. Yep. That's the Dr. Newsom that owns the medical clinic in King, the only medical clinic in King, in this part of Stokes County. Yep, that's him. That's the Dr. Newsom that, that owns all of, like, Sartown Mountain. Yeah, that's him. That's the Dr. Newsom that we literally were at his house a couple months ago working on some stuff in his house, and me and my brother thought it was the coolest house ever because it was the only house we'd ever seen that had an elevator in it. Yeah, that's him. That's Dr. Newsom. There's no way, Dad. You're, you're making this up. He said, well, we'll follow him home. And so sure enough, we sat in the parking lot until Dr. Newsom got up and rode his bicycle to his house. And we were like the creepy stalkers that followed him all the way to his house. And me and my brother were blown away that that was the Dr. Newsom. And we knew at that moment that Dad was honest and he was true, that he probably was one of the richest men in all of King, probably one of the richest men that I've ever met in my whole life. And, and so we came to this idea that, that there was a reality to what Solomon was telling us, that, decept, that worldly, decept, worldly wealth looks deceptive. And he tells us in chapter 13, verse 7, he says, One man pretends to be rich, but has nothing, and another pretends to be poor, but has great wealth. You see, Dr. Well, Dr. Newsom was the latter. He pretended to be poor, but he really had great wealth. In fact, that's the reason that he had such great wealth is because he didn't need the newest shoes. He didn't need the latest and greatest. He rode a bicycle to the ice cream shop instead of having a Cadillac or some Escalade or something like that. He didn't need the next greatest thing that hit the market. He just had, and the only reason he had an elevator in his house, and he'll tell you this, the only reason I had that house with an elevator is because one day I'm going to get old and I can't climb the stairs. And so I had this for a practical purpose because this is the house I'm going to die in. Right? It wasn't show off luxury. In fact, nobody else would ever know except we just happened to be there working on the house and thought it was the coolest thing ever that you could have a house with an elevator in it. And you see, worldly wealth can be so deceptive, not just because it looks on the outside like it, like it comes packaged in so different ways. And so we begin to realize that what the world sees is valuable, not everybody else does because there are some people who live with the reality that, that they don't have to have what the world tells them they have to have. And so we automatically think that they're poor. We associate them differently. But I want to tell you that the opposite is true as well. There are other people who do not have, yet they think they have, or they want to act like they have. Right? I have conversations with young folks all the time that they'll look at people who are about their same age, and they're like, man, I don't understand it. How do they have a house? How do they have all these cars? How do they have all this nice stuff? And my brother was one of these. Like, He constantly questioned people all the time. He's like, man, they're the same age as I am. Like, I'm making about what they're making. How do they have all this stuff? And so what we've become to realize is what I tell folks all the time, especially young folks and young couples, is look at Proverbs chapter 13, verse 7, because there's a lot of people who, are, who appear rich but have nothing. 
And so what I tell myself, what I tell folks all the time is when you drive down that road and you see that nice house and you see all those nice cars, you're like, how in the world is all that happening? What you don't see is the crushing death that those people are under. What you don't see is the strife and the fighting that happens in that house. What you don't see is all the debt that these people have accumulated and all the fact that they're not working for any wealth. They're just working to pay off the next payment that comes in. They're so far in debt with all this stuff that they're barely making payments on it. So what I remind young people all the time is, listen, you don't have to give in these pressures that think that you have to have all of this. Because they did, and what they really have is an appearance that they have everything. But guess what? Miss a payment, and all of it goes away. It's all gone. You appear like you have a lot, but you really have nothing. You see, worldly wealth can be very deceptive, not just what it looks like from the outside, but also what it can do on the inside. You see, worldly wealth has this way of setting up this false sense of security in some people. They start to believe that if you have enough money, then you're invincible. And it works like this. We've seen it just a few years ago, that if you want your kid to get into a certain college, even though they don't have the right grades for that college, you just give enough money, and all of a sudden your kid shows up on a sports team roster For a sport they don't even play. And guess what? They got in the college because they're on the sports team roster that they don't even play. And yet, how'd they do it? Not because they earned it. Because mom and daddy had enough money. And so they feel like they're invincible. There's nothing they can't do or nothing they can't get because there's enough money for that. Let me take you to the other side. Someone gets in trouble. And so if you get in trouble, then you simply have to have enough money to pay off a good lawyer. And all of a sudden, all your troubles go away. And so you're invincible to the law. Because the law doesn't apply to you because you have enough money for a good lawyer to get you off. Even take it to the, the realm of health care. For some of us, we, we look at our health care and we try to balance out. Do I have enough money for my medicine? Do I not have enough money for my medicine? Do I have enough money to go to the doctor this month? Do I have to wait till I meet my deductible? And now I met my deductible. Hot dog, let's do all these extra surgeries. Let's do all these things we've been putting off. I know how it is, all right? Now I can do these things. I can have these surgeries that I should have done two years ago, but I had to meet this certain financial obligation first. See, that doesn't happen with rich people. Rich people get sick, they just go to the doctor. And a good enough doctor is going to get you a good enough treatment you're going to be taken care of. Regardless of deductible, regardless of how much it costs, you don't worry about it. And so you begin to connect how much finance and wealth you have with this idea that you're fine. Financially, you're fine. Health-wise, you're fine. Legally, you're fine. And so you begin to feel this invincibility that kind of encloses you, this false sense of security, that as long as I've got money, I'm good to go. But what Solomon tells us is that's not the case. In fact, in chapter 11, he gives several Proverbs warning about this very same thing. And it's interesting to realize, like I told you before, this is written from the richest man in the world, really to his son who's getting ready to inherit all of this wealth. And I want you to notice what he says several times in chapter 11. Man, he drills this, right? Chapter 11, verse 4. It says, Wealth is not profitable on the day of wrath, but righteousness rescues from death. All this wealth amounts to nothing on the day that I die. A little bit later in verse 7 of chapter 11, he says the exact same thing. He says, when wicked men die, his expectations come to nothing and hope placed in wealth vanishes. And finally, a little bit later in the chapter, in chapter 11, verse 28, he says, anyone trusting in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage. Notice the difference between chapter or verse uh, uh Excuse me, verse 7 and verse 28. The wicked is addressed in verse 7, but in verse 28, anyone trusting in wealth. Whether you got it wickedly or not, whether you got your wealth righteously or not, it doesn't matter because when you trust in it, it will lead to your failure. In fact, this is actually a beautiful verse because there's a reference here back to the Garden of Eden. 
Right? This reference back to the Garden of Eden, that Adam and Eve had this same false sense of security, that they took the fruit from the tree that they weren't allowed to, that this was going to make them invincible. This was going to make them like God. And they believed this lie that, that, that has led to the fall of men. And really, this is sin entering the world, and it's led to this consequence that we are constantly wanting more. Think about it for a moment. Adam and Eve were in a garden, and every need they had were taken care of. But what they want? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. And that has plagued mankind for all of humanity's existence from that moment on. And so this idea that, that is you just want a little more. But I want you to notice the last part of the verse. The righteous will flourish like foliage. Foliage are the leaves of the tree. And so they will flourish. They will grow and they will spread out. Why? Because they remain attached to the tree. You see, as long as that leaf is attached to the tree, that leaf is going to prosper. As long as that leaf stays attached to the tree, it's going to flourish. It's going to grow. It's going to do what it was supposed to do. It's not going to fall off, and it's going to stay attached. The attachment is there because the attachment prevents us from wanting more because we're provided with everything we need from the tree. And as long as we remain attached to the tree, then we're good. So the attachment keeps us from wanting more. The attachment is what keeps us from trusting something we don't have, trusting money or buying whatever we want instead of what we do have. The attachment is there because it shows this reality that as long as we stay attached, what we need is really provided for. As long as we stay attached, we understand that we're not trusting in something false to get us to where we want to be. You see, that's why they took the apple because this apple was a way to get something that they wanted. You see, for all of us, we want to end our life with something better. For all of us, we want to end our time on this planet knowing that we're going somewhere else. And so what Solomon is telling his son over and over and over, and what Solomon is telling all of us is, listen, son, there are no armored cars following your hearse. There is no way that when you get to the pearly gates, God's going to say, all right, show me your bank account. There's no way that when you get to the pearly gates that you're going to be able to pay your way into heaven because all of that vanishes the moment that you pass from this life to the next life. It doesn't make a difference whether you have $10 million in a bank or or $1 to your name. The only thing that matters in the moment of your judgment is were you attached to the tree of life or were you not? Did you remain attached? Did you stay attached? You spent your whole life chasing after something. And was the something, the attachment that was there, the only thing that matters is your attachment to the giver of life, that you allowed His righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, to become your righteousness. And you remained attached because He's the one who came to give His life for yours, because He is the life and all that matters. And so we don't believe this deception of wealth That wealth is all that matters because a better view of money says that money is not going to be my master. God is going to be my master because at the end of my life, that's what matters most. And money is going to be a great tool that God is going to give us to use to build His kingdom and to bless others. And so we come back to the verse we started with in Proverbs 23, verse 4. If money is your master, then you will wear yourself out trying to seek after that master. But if God is your master and money is a tool that he's given you to bless others and to build his kingdom, then you will heed and live out Proverbs 23, verse 4. Don't wear yourself out to get rich. Stop giving your attention to it because at the end, all the wealth that you have will not be enough to save you. In the end, what Solomon is telling his son is this massive fortune that I have 
doesn't make a difference the moment that I breathe my last breath. The only thing that matters is was I attached and did I have a relationship with Christ? And did my relationships with Christ overshadow everything else? You want to build a better view of money? Don't wear yourself out over money. Wear yourself out over the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wear yourself out over the one who gave everything for, your, for Him. Wear yourself over building a relationship with Him first and then building a relationship with everybody else second. Let's pray together.